0: All right, uh, I want to introduce back to the uh, podium, Cluid, who's going to uh,
1: introduce Ian. Thank you, Dan. (laughs) So as you've guessed, this is not the end of Dan Tyre. Um, (laughs) He's he's not somebody you want to uh, keep quiet. Dan is going to be back. We're not going to take questions on Dan right now, but we will do later. We'll be open for questions. Um, I'll let him talk because he's always entertaining to talk. So I'm going to to flip over and I'm going to hand over to Ian. Uh, And I'm talking and clicking at the same time. Um, If anybody who knows me, they know that I'm interested in conservation wildlife. It's something that I'm passionate about and I help where I can, how I can. And I try and be focused in that help and I try and use the skills that I've gained over my work and my life to work on that particular cause and in the last few years I've been lucky enough to work with a number of very prominent people in that field um, and we've come across um, Ian we've come across the um, the Born Free Foundation, I've worked with Virginia McKenna um, I've worked with Sir David Attenborough strangely enough with Brian May who's all into badges if you, if you know all of that um, but the point of that is that and the point of, of introducing Ian here today, is to think about, strangely enough, HubSpot methodology, awareness, consideration, decision. we, We talk about these things. We talk about product. We talk about services that we're trying to sell. And Dan mentioned the noise that's out there in the world today, right? If you've got a product, if you've got something that you want somebody to buy or use, There's just so much noise. And we talk about content and authority content and video and all these kind of things. But just give a thought to those people who are out there who are trying to build awareness around a subject which is fundamental to all of us, which is the future of the planet and the future of the species. And it's strange that we actually have to say that. But what I'm trying to do is trying to use the techniques and the skills and the knowledge that is in this room and to reach out to you and for ask you to think a little bit about how you might help in this world. And having said that, I just want to hand over to Ian Redmond. And if you don't know Ian Redmond, he's the guy, he's the gorilla guy. He's done so many television documentaries. He was behind the work that David Attenborough did. If you ever saw David Attenborough talk to a gorilla, Um, I'm just going to stop talking and hand over to him.
0: This is not the sort of place you usually find uh, a wildlife conservationist. And I've been fascinated by what I've heard. Uh, Before uh, Chloe invited me, I wasn't really aware of what you do. Um, But having seen what you do, I now know why I'm here. Because we are going to do what Dan's ambition is. Um, As much good as we can... He says the universe. The universe is a very, very big place, as Douglas Adams famously said. Space. Very, very big. Uh, I'm more concerned with what's known as the biosphere. And the biosphere is the habitable bit of our planet. People talk about wanting to save the planet. The planet is a ball of rock. Ain't going to go anywhere, except round and round the sun. But the thin film of air and water in which we live, uh, that's the bit that we need to focus on. Now, many of you will perhaps have an interest in natural history. Perhaps you like watching documentaries on the television. And you get an impression from documentaries that much of the world is, is okay, it's fine. And one of the reasons you get that impression is because the documentaries that say otherwise tend to be a bit of a downer. And the commissioning editors and the controllers of the mainstream media don't want to depress you or frighten you because you might turn over and watch a game show, much more fun. or or some other uh, entertainment, sport, music, drama. And the reality of what's going on around you is is too scary, too frightening, so it doesn't get onto the mainstream media. By the time I've finished, I'll I'll suggest an alternative way that you can inform yourself. Uh, Last week, representatives from about 100 countries uh, met in Colombia for IPBES-6, You've been throwing a lot of acronyms my way, most of which I'm <laughs> unfamiliar with. Let me ask you how many of you know what the IPCC is? Yeah, yeah. The International Something Speaking P for Climate Change. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, yes. And, and one person in a room of people who presumably are reasonably well informed and care about life, uh, it's an unfamiliar acronym unless you're in that world. United Nations, uh, environment, climate change, big issues, global issues, and we all work on a very local level. Uh, IPBES is the equivalent for biodiversity and ecosystem services. So, uh, another collection of words you perhaps don't use a lot. Uh, Biodiversity is a posh word for nature, for life, for all the things that live on our planet. Uh, Ecosystem services is what they do for us and, and to maintain that biosphere. If we all live in the thin film, people, people have an, an idea about our atmosphere, that it kind of goes out a long way. And it does when you're standing here looking up. And if you climb up a mountain, you have to climb a long way before you start running out of air to breathe. Get to the top of Everest, you can just about do it without oxygen. Um, most people choose to take oxygen. But if you look at that thickness in comparison with the size of the ball of rock you think of the ball of rock is compare it to a beach ball like a lot of globes in school if you look at a globe in school um, and you ask people well estimate how far the atmosphere goes out and they're thinking you know, an inch or two from the beach ball in fact it's the thickness of cling film compared to the size of the planet the atmosphere is like cling film on the outside and we live in the cling film that's our bit so I'm talking to you as someone who has had some wonderful experiences in life. The thing I like most about the inbound slide you've just been looking at, is that it ends in delight. <laughs> delight. You want to delight your customers. Uh, my customers are everyone on the planet, and I want to share my delight. Because when I graduated from university with a very very mediocre degree, <laughs> I had the extraordinary good fortune to get the, the job, the volunteering job, no pay, uh, of assisting Diane Fossey. Uh, Diane became famous because her, life, uh, her life's work was made into a movie called Gorillas in the Mist. And, and not only did I eventually get to meet Sigourney Weaver and teach her how to swear like Diane Fossey and how to, how to grunt like a gorilla, um, but while I was working with Diane, uh, I, I got to introduce David Attenborough to the gorillas. So if you've seen the Life on Earth sequence, you know, that is the peg on which people tend to hang me. I've done a few other things in the past 40 years, but that's what people remember. And they remember it because David was delighted. It certainly wasn't planned that Pablo, a juvenile gorilla, would come and sit in his lap and squirm around. And he was trying to talk about the opposing thumb, um, which is what makes primates different from animals that can't hold stuff. We have an opposable thumb. Very useful. Not just we humans, we most primates have an opposable thumb. So that moment of delight of David Asenborough sitting surrounded by gorillas and even being played with, he wasn't so much playing with them, but they were certainly investigating him, um, was just sheer natural delight. And that made a lot of people interested in gorillas. If you've had the good fortune to meet not just a gorilla but a chimpanzee, an orangutan, even different non-human beings. You're familiar with the term human beings, we're all human beings and we tend to think of it as one word. But of course it's two words, human beings. You separate them and think, oh beings, if there are human beings there might be non-human beings. How do you define a being? I would suggest it's, it's someone who knows who they are. They have a sense of self and gorillas, elephants, whales and dolphins have such big brains and complex societies that evolution has given them this power of understanding who they are and how they fit in with their society. And they behave in a way which improves their standing in their society, which improves their reproductive capacity, which means that their genes will pass on and eventually we end up where we are today, with human beings and non-human beings. And the human beings are being so successful, perhaps because of your wonderful marketing techniques, that we are depleting the resources of our planet. We're using up the resources of our planet at a rate that is unsustainable. So we have to kind of scale back. And for businesses that are based on growth, we want to be the fastest growing company that sells socks. Well, that's, that's very commendable. Um, but... You have to understand that if your materials that you make your socks out of are coming from unsustainable sources, that's not good. And if your company's footprint is greater than the planet can sustain, eventually you're going to run out of resources, you're going to cause a problem. And because we've always been used to the idea that we are very small beings, on a very large planet, our impact is never going to be so great that it's going to change things on a global scale. And that's one thing that the IPCC has pretty effectively demonstrated. And all but uh, the present incumbent in the White House uh, are largely convinced that uh, we need to scale back and reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and perhaps to look at these um, sustainable development goals that the United Nations have set out to curb our excesses and live within the um, energy budget of our planet. Okay, that's a long way from gorillas and it's a long way from marketing. But I'll try and tie these thoughts together. So IPBES, Intergovernmental Panel on on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, uh, had its sixth meeting last week. And the conclusion was, which you probably wouldn't have found in your, the headlines of your papers because maybe it's too depressing or maybe just it's too many acronyms and nobody's really interested, um, but we're in real trouble. Most of the focus of conservation in um, my professional life, and I didn't set out to be a conservationist, I, I, I'm a naturalist, I delight in nature. And I wanted to spend a life studying and photographing and filming and, and getting to understand nature. Um, but the the forty years that I've been doing that has been the 40 years where we've seen animal populations crash. And those that have come to a point where they are endangered or critically endangered and about to disappear get a lot of attention. And you look at the conservation literature. And you see people saying, you know, I don't want to live in a world, I don't want my children to grow up in a world where there aren't elephants, because elephants are wonderful, and I have to agree. Elephants are amazing. And it would be a great shame if our children and our grandchildren lived in a world where there were no elephants. And people think, well, yes, they're nice. What a shame it would be to lose them, because they're nice. And what people aren't thinking is, ooh, um, if 150 years ago there were 10 to 20 million elephants in Africa which estimates suggest there were and now there's fewer than half a million we have lost 95 97% of the elephants ooh now if you're an ecologist you study how animals and plants interact with each other this is where we get to the good bit. I am so sorry I didn't come equipped with my big ball of elephant poo, because pulling that out is always a good moment in a lecture. But we have an elephant, and um, Archie doesn't, doesn't produce a lot of poo. Um, I did take a picture, which if you go to my Twitter feed, I tweet as at four apes, four as a number, A-P-E-S, because I'm both four apes and, and we're concerned about the four kinds of apes, um, You'll see a picture of Archie next to a ball of elephant dung that I took last month. Uh, I I took the photograph last month. I didn't take the ball of elephant dung. I left it there. Uh, And I left it there because you think about elephants. They are large animals. They are the largest living land animal. And they're herbivores. So they eat plants every day. An elephant will eat about 4% of his or her body weight in vegetable matter. And it goes through the elephant and comes out the other end. That's a lot of shit. That's a lot, a lot of elephant dung, of poo, of excrement. To the point that if you average out the size of elephants, obviously large elephants eat more and therefore produce more poo than small elephants, but you're looking at every week, one elephant is producing approximately one metric tonne of first class organic manure. Which, if the elephant has been feeding on seeds, and elephants do like to eat fruit, pods of acacia trees, f- forest fruits, all goes in. Mm, yum, yum, yum. They really enjoy it. They close their eyes and they're feeding with their trunk. And their trunk is like having your nose coming out between your thumb and your finger, if you're an elephant. Imagine you're going into a buffet, and while you're chatting, your hand is, oh, volovons very nice. You pick it up and eat it. That's what. how elephants feed. They don't so much look at their food, they Oh yes. And with their nose, they're actually, they've got an opposable thumb, but it's on the end of their nose. So they pick it and manipulate things and put them in their mouth. They do that for much of the day. And of course, much of the day, they're producing big piles of poo, which then mulches down nicely into the soil. And the seeds that have passed through the elephant have evolved to do that. If you take a seed from a tropical tree and stick it in compost, it probably won't germinate because they have evolved inside fruit which animals eat. Primates, some birds, elephants, tapirs if you're in Latin America, spider monkeys, murikis. It's not just about gorillas and elephants. But the animals that eat the fruit chew it and scarify the surface of the seeds and swallow it. And it passes through their gut, which is very acidic, so it has to be well defended that's why they don't grow if you just put them in the ground the moisture can't get in because of this protective coat around the seed but once it's gone through that system and popped out the other side one it's miles from the parent plant elephants especially they disperse the seeds they disperse more seeds of more species further than any other animal and all those seeds are spread out and they start to grow. Some of them get eaten by something else, but that's an ecosystem service. The elephant is providing to those other species. The herbivores that can't reach the top of the trees, the elephants pull down branches and they get to eat them. The seeds start to grow, they germinate, they don't make it to adulthood. They can't all make it to adulthood, they get eaten. They get, and it's part of the ecosystem. So I mentioned that perhaps a century ago there might have been 10 million elephants and now we've got fewer than half a million. So 95% of what have been called the mega-gardeners of the forest. All the animals that, that do this for seeds, we think of as gardeners of the forest. If you want a bit more information and you've got to spare 15 minutes, watch my TED talk, Gardeners of the Forest. Want to find out on Twitter or Facebook, hashtag Gardeners of the Forest. And that will lead you to lots of articles and videos that explain this. And this is one of the things that's coming across from this IPBES report. It's not just that some animals are nearing extinction and oh dear, we're going to lose them. That would be a shame because they're really interesting and we want to go and see them on holiday in future. But the work that they do is kind of critical to the functioning of the biosphere. And it's not just big animals. Caterpillars poo too. Ecologists talk about the rain of faecal droppings in a forest. Lovely concept. All these little caterpillars (laughs) munching away And if you counted all the caterpillars and weighed them, you'd probably find the biomass, the weight of those caterpillars, is more than the elephants. And they're scattering the poo more effectively. They're not seed dispersing, but they're certainly converting leaves into nutrient packages which drop down onto the forest floor, get used by fungi and microbes, and, and eventually turning back into trees. And trees are really important because, well, obviously, you know that photosynthesis is the basis of all life on Earth. It takes in carbon dioxide, stores the carbon, puts out oxygen. We breathe, and that feels good. It's delightful. You walk into a forest, and you walk around, and you've got all these trees and arches, and the air feels fantastic, and it's cool. Last month, I, I, I had a new toy to play with. I work with a a team called Vico. We'll get on to Vico later. VECO. VicoTourism.org. I was going to pull it up, but I've got a microphone in my hand, so I can't type. Um, I'll put that there, perhaps, and type that in. Because we want people to understand how delightful these habitats are to experience, bearing in mind that very few people are actually going to get there and experience it themselves if they live in a city in the developed world. Some who do well and have some spare money might go on holiday there. And much conservation work is dependent on those tourist dollars. But it's a tiny percentage of the population that's ever going to experience that for themselves. So how do you convey that delight which I and a few other lucky people get to experience firsthand to other people so that they share your enthusiasm for protecting it? Well, I think the key phrase in conservation is enlightened self-interest. If you can enlighten people as to why it's important for them that these things continue, that the habitats that we're trying to protect continue to remain healthy, then it's in their own self-interest and their children's interest and their grandchildren's interest. We want to live on a healthy planet. And one of the things which is coming out of all these ecological studies is that the health of an ecosystem, like a tropical rainforest, depends on the animals. And what has come out of the climate talks and all the research that has gone through those, uh, informing those, those talks, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is that we are not going to win the battle against climate change If we don't win the battle against deforestation, because we need forests all over the world, but especially tropical forests. I'm going to to do the the googly bit now um, and type in T341. Whoops, no, that wasn't a one, that that was a one. T341. It's not quite a Google whack, but it's close. Because. There are a few other things, I've, you know, I used to do this and it was at the top of the list, but some other T341 is coming in To Oh, well, that's interesting isn't it? Um, some hardware thing. So let's put T341 um, and add a word, precipitation. See if that gets it to the top of the list. There we go. Yes. I don't know what somebody else utilising T three four one uh, when what I wanted to show you was this one. Can we go to full screen and play the video? Yes. Look at that. So um, what you're seeing there is one of the most effective tools for. What you're seeing there is one of the most effective tools <laughs> for explaining to people why tropical forests matter and why the gardeners of those forests, the elephants, the primates, the toucans, the tapirs, are important. What you're seeing is an animation of global weather patterns. Precipitation. The white represents not cloud but water vapour, but of course you can't see water vapour, it's a gas. But go with it, the white is the water vapour and the orange bits are the precipitation. And what you can't quite see, perhaps, is in the Congo Basin, it's pulsing. Now, up here you can see the clock. The hours are whizzing by, the days are going by at roughly one day a second. So it's condensing years' precipitation patterns into a few minutes. And the daily pulsing there, that's the rainfall in the Congo Basin. It's a rainforest, you expect it to rain, but rainforests don't just receive rain, they generate rain evapotranspiration, the transpiration of water from the roots and the evaporation from the leaves, puts water into the atmosphere. And my colleagues at the Global Canopy Program in Oxford estimate that a unit area of tropical rainforest is putting 8 to 10 times more water vapour into the atmosphere than that same area of, say, ocean, where you think most of the moisture is evaporating. And that produces weather patterns which you can track. And follow them. look at them. You see these storms going across, and then joining the even bigger pump in the Amazon basin. And then you can look at the weather patterns are going up here, and they, they water the midwest of America and then sweep across the Atlantic and water here. So these weather systems are global, and they seem to be driven in some way by this daily rainfall in the three areas of tropical forest: Congo Basin, Amazonia, and the more complicated. Rainforested islands of Southeast Asia. Interestingly, if you look at a global map of primate distribution, that's where the primates live, the non-human primates. The human primates, all over the spot. But we depend on these global weather patterns. Now, I like a glass of wine. I expect you like a glass of wine. And whether you like your wine from South Africa, or from France, from California, from New Zealand... You can see where that vineyard is getting its rain from by watching this map and tracking backwards. You can see the water that's the water vapor that's, that's going west from Africa to Amazonia and then hitting the Andes and sweeping off and coming around and watering South Africa. And the, the storms are coming across. There's Australia and New Zealand. So we lose those global water pumps. They're like the, the three chambers of a global heart, pumping water around the planet. It stops raining in the vineyards. That's bad news. It stops raining where we collect water for our dams, for our cities. It stops raining where the aquifers that feed the hydroelectric plants. So even our clean energy starts to disappear if we change these rainfall patterns. Now, if the world continues on its current trajectory and we hit an average global temperature increase of 4 degrees the computer models of how the climate will change suggest that sub-Saharan Africa, the Amazon Basin and Southeast Asia will become arid. So we completely screw up the the biosphere. The biosphere as we currently know it will not operate. And that will make make life very, very difficult for us. So that's scary stuff. And it's coming out of an intergovernmental meeting in Colombia last week. And you can find very little mention of it on the news. Perhaps because people don't, Want to be scared, but we need people to, to change their behavior. Now, what's really interesting about learning about the, the HubSpot thing is that essentially you're using ethology. Ethology is a study of behavior. I'm an ethologist, I'm fascinated by animal behavior. I like to watch them. And when I say animal behavior, we're animals too. So, human behavior. And to learn about animals, particularly big scary ones like elephants and gorillas, it's kind of hard if they fear you. So the breakthrough that Diane Fossey made 50 years ago, 50 years ago last year, since Diane Fossey started her work and changed the human gorilla relationship. Oh, let's let's stop that because we're going to go into other weather patterns that we don't need to um, do. Um, Stop, 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 stop. Because I, I, I do want to come back to this um, web browser but I'll do that in a moment um, 50 years since Diane Fossey changed the way we inter- interact with gorillas gorillas and humans share a common ancestor, not quite as close in evolutionary time as humans and chimpanzees and bonobos and a little bit uh, closer than orangutans and, and gibbons even further but they're all our cousins understanding our cousins is fascinating for us because we're a very self-obsessed species. We tend to think in anthropocentric ways where humans are at the centre. We are the be-all and end-all in in most of our lives. Humans matter more than everything else. But if everything else suddenly turns out to be important for human survival, maybe that will give people that enlightened self-interest that we want to protect gorillas and elephants in the Congo Basin so that the water pump keeps going and... Our vineyards keep getting watered. But what a shame that not one penny of the price you pay for a bottle of wine goes back to protect the forests that drive the global weather patterns that water the vineyards. We have to change our economy. That's a big job. And it would involve billions of dollars. And you know what happens when people start talking about putting billions of dollars into tropical forests? It attracts people who are interested in billions of dollars. Not necessarily tropical forests. And there's a very well-meaning UN scheme called RED REWD d reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, plus all the benefits you get from doing that, like species conservation and ecosystem services and all that. And in places, RED has worked, but in places it really hasn't, because uh, corruption, humans being humans. Ooh, I can just slip that money into my bank account and the people in the forest who cares, They're the least influential people on the planet, indigenous people who live in forests, the furthest away you can get from a capital city where the big decisions are taken, and they've lived there forever, and it's their forest, and they have no document to say it's their forest. So they get pushed out by mining companies, by plantations, by uh, loggers, whoever wants to exploit the resources. And we in the developed world, particularly those of us who are trying to increase our sales are part of the economy that's driving that process. I don't want to make you feel bad. I want to make you feel, I can do something about that. So sustainability, certification, the products that we sell, we need to make sure that that they are from a sustainable source. Otherwise, we're part of that problem that's driving industry and, and overconsumption that is destroying the biosphere where we live So it's our self-interest that we have to get across. And I struggle to get this across to people, because the people who most want to help save gorillas are the people who are delighted by them. They're not thinking, well, okay, a family of gorillas, in terms of the ecological impact, is about the same as one elephant. So ten or a dozen gorillas, they're producing about a ton of manure every week too. They're eating fruit. They don't disperse them as far as elephants, but they're the second to elephants in terms of seed dispersal importance in African forests where you get gorillas and elephants. You'd like me to wrap up? Yes. (laughs) I will wrap up, but I'd like you because you're all very influential people and, and using these methods, you're being even more influential. You're building trust with people. I think that's fantastic. I was going to talk about Diane and how she was able to build trust with gorillas. Because until Diane Fossey, almost every gorilla thought that every human was very bad news, very frightening, very dangerous. And when gorillas are frightened, well, first of all, they'll just run away. But if the human keeps following them, the silverback, who's twice the size of the females, three times the size of any of us, get a gorilla on a set of, a silverback on a scales there, and we three might about equal him in weight, and probably take about ten of us to equal him in strength, Silverback gorillas are very big, very powerful, very strong, and they've got very long canine teeth. So you don't want to mess with them. And Diane Fossey, uh, an occupational therapist from Louisville, Kentucky, got the gig to go and study them. And because she was used to dealing with children who were frightened and inward-looking, she had methods of winning trust. She was a tall, gangly woman, very self-conscious. Her humour was self-deprecating too, because... Uh, of her self-consciousness but when it came to winning the trust of someone who was frightened she was brilliant and she learned how to win the trust of wild gorillas to the point that nine or ten years later when David Attenborough and the BBC crew came out they were able to come out with me and see the gorillas and the gorillas didn't run away more than that they actually came and interacted with the film crew now if you go and see gorillas in Rwanda and I hope you will please uh, respect the seven metre distance. We try and keep people seven metres from the gorillas because if you cough over them or sneeze over them, you might infect them with a a human germ to which they have no immunity and it might be more serious for them. So that's an important... You know, the the days of of baby gorillas playing on a visitor, we have to put a stop to that because there are thousands of visitors now and it's been the the success, the one success story in in the conservation uh, of species that I'm involved with is the mountain gorilla. Every year, at the end of the year, there are more mountain gorillas than there were at the beginning of the year. Their numbers are recovering because of intense conservation work. And it was Diane that was primarily the whistleblower and the one who enabled that to happen. Every other kind of ape is decreasing, apart from the human species. Elephants across Africa, across Asia, are decreasing. And as we lose them, we lose the work they do in that ecosystem. And as we're increasingly aware, for global um, climate stability, we need those ecosystems. It ain't a luxury. It's not, oh, it'd be nice if we can save some gorillas because we can go and see them on holiday. It's Oh, how many gorillas? Have we got enough to keep doing the job that they've done to maintain this cl- climate stability that we're aiming for? So how do we get that across to people? Oh, three ways. I'm very quickly going to run by you, uh, if I can, in the time available. Um, for Dot. Is one website. Uh, I chair the Ape Alliance, which is a coalition of about 100 NGOs, non-governmental organisations around the world. And we endeavour to carry this message across, that apes are really important and there are different ways of conserving them. And we're trying to change the way people see apes. Traditionally, in, in the West, we've seen them as, as clowns or entertainers or in circuses, they're selling tea. Remember those PG Tips adverts, dressed up chimps. People thought they were hilarious. Those ads and, and that attitude is still extant in China and Southeast Asia. Apes are still being dressed in clothes made to do daft things in a circus ring and people pay to go and see it, which drives the demand for those babies to be snatched from their mother's Who have to be killed and if they're in a social group like gorillas and chimpanzees several animals will die to get a baby to be shoved in a box and shipped across the world so that somebody can watch it in a pair of trousers look like a funny little human we have to stop that because they have work to do in the forest and because they're intelligent social mammals self-aware beings like ourselves so the ape alliance is doing this and if you go to YouTube, which I won't do now, and look for the bike that helps save gorillas, you'll see a nice little ad, a video, which shows you how a pedaled power cinema, because the people we need to convert, are the people who live next to the forest, and often they're miles from the nearest power supply. But if you take a bicycle, a little generator, a projector, the kids in the schools can generate the power to see the films. And it's wonderful. And watching for the first time behavior on a screen, they are delighted. They're humans, like us, and they see something and they are delighted. And the parents come, the, the halls that we show these in, are absolutely packed, and people peering through the window, and lines of people outside the window, looking over the shoulder of the person in front, who's trying to see a chink of the moving pictures. Because they live in a world where there are no moving pictures. There's no cinema, there's no TV. So it's really powerful. And the message is, not, you must stop doing this, but... Wow, look at that. That's the reaction you get. And and Gillian Miller, who runs the guerrilla organisation, based in Primrose Hill, um, tells a story about being at the back of a hall and one of the mothers has come in with her baby in her arm and she's watching a film of a gorilla feeding her baby and it's obvious. It's the same behaviour. Crook of the arm, head in here, hold it to the breast and she says, ah, that's my sister. You don't need a, uh, someone saying, oh, we mustn't kill gorillas. You just see. And her husband was a hunter. She said, right, I'll be having words with my husband. <laughs> That's how you win people across. So, um, many people are more sophisticated than that. and They've got internet. They've got the ability to watch videos. But videos are very passive. You sit there and you watch. So, another group that I'm working with that you might be excited by is introducing, (laughs) hang on, Vcotourism.org. This is exciting, because here on this website, you can go on virtual safaris. And if you've got the... Where's my props? Ah. See, my prop bag, I don't have the elephant in my prop bag, but I do have... um, The VR headset. How many of you have used a VR headset? Quite a few of you. Are you gamers? (laughs) So so you're using them to play games. See, I think it's really exciting that people can play games in made-up worlds in these, and it's so realistic. But we want to use these to show people the real world, but in a way that they can interact with it. So you go to vikotourism.org, you can click on take a tour and virtually go there. And if you want to download the apps, we did one app for the United Nations called Ape App VR. And you can visit all the species of great apes using a VR headset. And we did one with the Born Free Foundation called Gorilla Safari VR, which goes to see the eastern lowland gorillas. Did all of you watch Gordon Buchanan with the gorilla family and me a couple of Christmases ago? A few nods, yes. Well, you find yourself in the forest with Gordon over here filming the gorillas and see some of the scenes that you saw in that documentary. So documentaries are fine, but as I mentioned at the outset, it's hard to get documentaries about the really serious stuff on air. And this is perhaps the most important thing I have to say, sorry, um, because you can you can all do this. You can make this happen. Eco Ecostreams with a Z, because Jim Branchflower, who set it up, is from California, and they do things like that there ecostreams.com isn't leaping to that's definitely the right spelling ecostreams.com yeah why isn't that leaping into action you need to put www. evidently yes i thought that was old hats, i thought nobody did www anymore <laughs> I thought it was all the HTTP colon slash thingy. Anyway, films that make a difference. So people have have got used to the idea that they can get their their media content in their hand, on their smartphone, on their iPad, whatever, Um, but it's all 30-second clips. Bang, bang, bang. What happens if you want to really understand a problem? And some filmmaker has put his last bean into a documentary to bring that issue to you, and you want to act on it. Well, there's no way to do that. Some of the most exciting, award-winning films that are changing the way that we treat the natural world, if they get onto the mainstream media, it's like 10 o'clock at night on BBC4. Tiny audiences. So, we've created this website, uh, which is soon going to upgrade to a channel, so you can watch it on your telly, called EcoStreams. And whereas people are prepared to pay a subscription for a sports channel or music, we think some people might be prepared to pay to learn what's happening in the world and how they can help. And I would really like you to consider subscribing to that. There's the pitch. But engaging with it because this can make a difference. So trying to make the universe a better place, big task. The biosphere, that's within our grasp. We can all visit every part of the biosphere and care about it. And if we're talking to people who can't, we can use virtual reality, we can use the modern technology to inform them so that they are both delighted and it's in their self-interest to change that bit of behaviour that might be contributing to the problem. So certified products, FSC wood and paper, sustainable palm oil from plantations that are not replacing natural forests, marine stewardship council, fish, when you go for your fish and chips, don't buy it if you can't be sure that it's from a well-managed fishery. That's what we all have within our power to do, because the pound in our pocket or the dollar in our pocket is what's driving these processes so we are, we are the power and I, I'm so excited to learn about these new methods of reaching people winning their trust and then delighting them because then we'll have a, a delightful audience and, and consumers who are using their money to do good rather than being unwitting, unwittingly part of the, the destruction of our biosphere That was rather longer than you anticipated, sorry. Um, There's lots more online, but thank you so much for the opportunity to to talk to you.
1: I hope you understand why I tolerated and (laughs) allowed and brought Ian on. It's a pleasure, always. Thank you so much. Um, You've been listening. Uh, Let's take a break. Five, ten minutes, coffee, lose, all of those things, and then we're back to marketing. And uh, thank you so much.